morning. My name is Erin Dopel, and I'm excited to read God's word to you today. The passage we're going to read is from John 18, verses 1 through 11. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. Hopefully you're, you're doing well today. Happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, my name is Nick. It's always an honor uh, and privilege to, to get to open up God's word for God's people. Um, and um, yeah, as, as, as Lindsay said earlier, we're actually in the last week of our summer uh, sermon series that we've called This Passage Changed my life, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, it's been special for me to, to not only get to preach some of my very favorite passages, but also to get to learn and listen to some of our other teachers, some of our other preachers, and just get to hear some of the passages that changed their life. And I do wonder uh, what passage maybe you'd point to, um, because that's a great question for you to be thinking about. And I, I wonder what passage or passages did the Lord use in your story, in your life, to grip you? Um, to change you, to transform you. And, and I would just encourage, maybe this is a question that you continue to keep in your arsenal of questions as you're interacting with, with people here or you're in your community group or in the lobby or maybe you work with a few believers um, and maybe it's just a question you would ask because when we, when we ask that question and when we have some dialogue around it, um, not only does it inspire us and encourage us, um, but it also helps us learn about God from each other. Um, which is a really cool, cool thing. Um, and I would just say this too, is that I don't want you to miss that as a part of this series, um, there's this kind of we're embedded into it, there's this rock solid truth that we believe that this book, the Bible, can and does change us. The Bible can and does transform our lives because, not just because it's filled with some cool stories and inspirational and wise sayings, but because we believe this is the word of God. This is God's word given to us. It's, it's by it that he reveals to us about himself, about the gospel, about Jesus. Um, and it's by which that he changes us. John 17 says that he sanctifies us by his truth. He leads us. We know that from Hebrews chapter 4 that this book, the Bible, is alive. 
Scripture says it's living and active, that he uses it to, to speak to our soul. And in, in, in any passage where, where his words speak, which again, this is his word, can and does change us. And in any passage where we're able to lean in and hear his voice, again, the voice of the Lord is on every page, it's, it, it will move us. And I believe that the Lord gives us these sacred moments even, even when we have these kind of, these, these kind of divine interactions where, where he'll take a passage like the one that, I, that we just read together and he'll show us something that's deeper or greater that, that at just the right moment I needed that. Or at just the right moment for you, maybe you read something and it just affirmed his reality or it affirmed, it affirmed his love or it showed to you that he sees you and he knows you. And for me, our passage this morning was one of those passages that the Lord used in my life to help me see Jesus in a different way. It helped me to see him as larger and as greater, as more powerful and as more loving than I had seen him before I had come to it. And for me, it was that passage that helped enlarge my view of God, enlarge my view of Jesus. You know, in, in life, there are things that that we know are amazing and beautiful and large, but until you see it in person or until you stand across from it, our knowledge of it, our, our awareness of it is limited. And so, so until you fly for the first time and you look outside, the, you look, at, look through the window and, and you see the world, or until you, you go to the Grand Canyon and you stand, you stand on the edge and you look out, or until you go to the, uh, an NBA basketball game and you see an NBA player up front and in person, you go, man, they are tall. It, it changes the way you view it. It transforms your vision of it. I had a seminary professor ask um, my class this really interesting question. And it's, it's interesting in the fact that I remember it to, even today. But he asked our class this question. He says, are you a big godder or a little godder? Are you a big godder or a little godder. And in essence, what he was asking us, is the God that you worship and serve and live for big or little? And does your life and your actions and your affections reflect as much? And, and for me, again, this is one of those passages that helped me see that he was big. And when your eyes, when our eyes are open to how big he is, it's like rocket fuel for your faith and for your passion for Jesus. And so... Um, my prayer this morning is that I hope that we corporately, through this passage, can see Jesus likewise today. And if you're a kid in this room, I'm so glad you're in this room today because, again, I love this passage, this story. And, and so let's jump in. John chapter 18. In our passage, as we, as we saw, you, we, we meet characters like Judas we meet characters like a, a cohort of soldiers. We meet Jesus, obviously. We see Peter. We even have someone's ear getting chopped off, which is a little, a little interesting. There's a lot wrapped up in this passage. In our passage, it takes place on this, this night of all nights. And in John 18, if you're, if, if you're there, hopefully you have the passage open. Well, what you see is you see the, the scene changing from, from the upper room to now this garden. It changes from Jesus' teachings and his high priestly prayer that kind of accompanied the last, the previous five chapters, 13 through 17, or four chapters. And what you see now is that you see the scene moving to this most dramatic of scenes. And Jesus and the 11 disciples, they're leaving 
the city for the night. And they cross over the Kidron Valley, which was this deep ravine east of Jerusalem, and they head to the, this garden of olive trees. And we know it as the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will take a few of his disciples and he'll pray. And, and he would often go here, and it was a place of reprieve where he would go and have some quiet moments with his disciples. They would rest together. They'd get away from the crowds, and they'd pray. And, but what's interesting is that Jesus, just as Jesus is there with his disciples, Judas is also leading a, a band of soldiers to that same garden. Judas, the betrayer, he's guiding this contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards, and he, he knows the place. And in moments like this, it's sad to think about Judas, who was face-to-face -face with Jesus for three years, he, and he misses him, and he makes his choice, and he chooses a side against Jesus. And Judas was guiding a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards. And the Greek word there for, for, for contingent is spirion, or it meant cohort. It was a one-tenth of a Roman legion, and a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. So one-tenth is about 600 soldiers. Now, I don't know if he was leading all that. The picture I get, and most, commentary, most commentators will say that he wasn't leading all 600, but it was, it was enough. It was a lot of soldiers, enough that, that it necessitated a commanding officer to be with them. And Judas is leading them there. And so you have in this passage, you have the time, which was at night. You have the location, which was away from the city itself, removed from the crowds. And it provided the betrayer with an ideal venue to bring the arresting officers right up to Jesus, and Judas knew the spot. You think that, you think that, that Jesus could have hidden better? Like, come on. He knew, he knew where you were going to go. But, I don't, but Jesus wasn't trying to hide. And with blazing torches, verse 3 says, lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. And I just, can you imagine the sight? Could you imagine that scene, the, the sounds, the clanking of weapons, the, the, the marching of, of different footsteps, the, the lantern, the fire? I mean, I, I'm sure it was a scary sight, a fearful moment. I'm not sure about you. I, I, I hate walking through the woods at night anyway, you know, much less than a night like this where you see soldiers coming. In these next verses that we get to, what I want the rest of the sermon to take us is what do we learn about Jesus from, from, these, from, these, from this passage? What do we see? What do we see in these next verses in this passage? And, here's, and I have four things I'm going to share. And the first is this, that we see that Jesus was in full control. Jesus was in full control. Jesus was in charge. You see it in that verse, verse 4, where Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, and so he stepped forward to meet them. And th this isn't like he fully realized because he heard a twig snap in the dark and he was, he was aware. He fully knew what laid before him. I mean, you see that in John 13 where it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world. John 17, just a chapter prior, says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. And Jesus fully knew and he stepped forward. Imagine the courage, the initiative. Jesus wasn't running. One commentator, one commentator says, says this. He says, Jesus was in complete control of the situation. 
He, he was not fleeing. He was not taken by surprise. He knew that Judas would meet him there, and so he went there. You know, in our worlds, because we're not God, because we are limited, we get blindsided. We get caught off guard, but not Jesus, not God, not ever. He's unarmed, but he's in command of the entire situation. He's initiating his plan, the plan that, that, that has existed before the beginning of time. One, one, one author, he says this, he says, So when he crosses the brook of Kidron to a garden, which had been a favorite resort for himself and his disciples, what is happening is that the second Adam, Jesus is the second and greater Adam, he's deliberately entering upon the final conflict with the prince of evil, reversing the situation in the Garden of Eden that, where the serpent took the initiative in the assault upon the first Adam. The serpent took the initiative in the Garden of Eden, and Jesus is now taking the initiative here to reverse it, to bring about salvation, to bring about redemption for us. And we see his full control. That's the first thing. The second thing we learn is that we also see his great power. And I love that interchange in verses 5 and 6 where Jesus asks, who are you looking for? And they reply, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, well, I am he. And they all, they draw back and they fall to the ground. And this is the part, this is the passage, the verses that blew me away when I was reading it. Where I, I found myself doing a double take. I found, wait, what, what happened? Because this is the only account that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they don't have this, this version. And so you read it and you go, wait, let me get this straight. There's this full contingent of soldiers. Jesus takes the initiative. He steps forward. Who are you looking for? They say Jesus. He says, I am he, and they all fall. So Roman soldiers who are trained not to fall, who, temple guards who for weeks were preparing and waiting for the right time, when Jesus says, I am he, they fall to the ground. And that's, that should make us go, Wow. This is a reaction, a reaction that accompanies standing in the presence of God. You encounter God and you fall to the ground. You see it all through the scriptures. Ezekiel accounts, when I saw the vision, I fell on my face. Daniel says, and when I heard the sound of his words, I fell to the ground. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus, the glory of God shows and he falls to the ground and he hears the voice of God saying, Saul, Saul, these soldiers do not hold power over him. And the Lord chooses here to give us this, this brief glimpse to allow us to see that they're standing before a king. That when the Lord wills, every knee will bow. And it's almost as if in this passage, time stands still. The, still, the, the veil gets kind of pulled back. Heaven breaks in and he allows us to see his fullness. He allows us to see his glory, his great power. It reminds me of John chapter 10, verse 18, where he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me. That phrase, I am he, you might, you might be kind of tracking here. There's significance with that phrase, I am. And Jesus, what he's doing here is he's not only identifying himself as the one they're looking for, but he's identifying himself as God. Where he's referencing back this I am statement. He's, he's tying himself directly to Yahweh, to, to, the, to the God who always was. You remember Exodus chapter 3 where 
where the Lord meets Moses in the burning bush and Moses says, hey, what do I, what do I say is your name if they ask me? What do I call you? And, and God says, I am who I am, Yahweh. This statement of existence, this statement of, of always being. Or there's a section in the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55, that's known as the suffering servant section of Isaiah, where it's this, these prophecies pointing to the Messiah who would come that would be God. And throughout that section, there's multiple times the phrase, I am he, I am he. And I, I put one up on the screen, Isaiah 48, verse 12. He says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. And he's linking that as a reference to himself. Even in the Gospel of John, you'll see seven I am statements all throughout the, the, the Gospel. John chapter 6, you see, where he's looking at the Pharisees. He says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him, and he walks right through the crowd. The Gospel of John, one of the most beautiful things in the Gospel is that it continues, it's written, Scripture says in John chapter 21, he writes it so that we would believe, that we would trust that he is who he says he is. And Jesus in this, this moment where he, he shows his glory, his great power, he says, I am he, and at that comment or that moment, they fall. You know, I do wonder for some of us in this room today, if the Lord needs to remind you that you can trust him. That he needs to remind you that he is who he says he is. He has all power. He's in full control of your life. He's in full control of all the events of this world. And he's calling you to believe him, to calling you to trust him. So we see that he's in full control. We see his great power. But the third thing that we learn about Jesus from this passage, we, we learn and we see his protective care. You see it in verse 8 and 9 where, where he says, I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I'm the one you want, let these others go. Let these others go. What's interesting is that who is Jesus concerned about? That in the midst of all this stuff that's about to happen, and he knows it's about to happen, who's this concerned for? His concern is for his followers, for his disciples. He says they don't need to be taken. Let, they don't need to die. Let them go. And isn't it remarkable that in, in this most dramatic moment, Jesus is thinking about others and his care is on full display. I don't know about you, but who are you often thinking about in your most stressful moment? <laughs> Usually it's all circled around, who, what, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? But in Jesus' one of the most stressful moments, he's thinking about his disciples. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought, you know, God has so many things to handle. I don't need to bother God or God doesn't want to be bothered with me right now. But what does this show us? That in the midst of the, the weight that he is moving towards, that he's thinking about you and me and his disciples. And he, he, Jesus is showing us, he's teaching us that his heart is for us. His heart is for me. I, I, I can... Trust that he can handle it no matter what I'm going through. Because if he's walking through this and he's, he's also thinking about his disciples, he's saying, I, I care for you. I, I want to handle whatever you're going through. I will protect you. I will guide you. Now we, we see Jesus here sacrificing himself for their safety. We know that at the cross, 
Uh, what he's doing is for our salvation, but in this scene, we get this beautiful picture of him substituting himself, substitutionary atonement. He's substituting himself so that they can go free. One pastor writes, he says, he died not only for them, but instead of them. And we see Jesus here being the good shepherd, laying down his life for the sheep. Going back to John chapter 10, this, this great shepherd passage, John chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, and this is the key phrase, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And Jesus is teaching us that Jesus is not a hired hand. Jesus is the counter, and he cares everything for the sheep. John 6, 39 says, and this is the will of God that I shall not lose one of all those you've given me, he says. And John 17, as he's praying, uh, he says, during my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them. So Jesus fulfills what the scripture has said. He fulfills the Father's will. And what he's promised, he says, I don't, lose a, I don't lose a single one. And maybe for some of you today, we need, to, we need to rub that in. This idea that as a child of God, he will not lose you. That as one of his sheep, if you've been wandering, or if you feel far away because of actions or because of something you've gone through, and you feel far away, that he will continue being the good shepherd to you. That, and he will pursue you and he will protect you. And he offers his life for yours and protects you from the wolves. And his grip on you is strong. Oftentimes we, we have this image that it's us holding our grip on God. And that's the wrong way of thinking it. Because the, the right way, John 10 says that no one could snatch you from his hand. His grip is on you. And it's strong as his people. And he says, my life for theirs. And these, this scene comforts us and teaches us about his care for us. But it moves us to the last thing. We also see his willing surrender. Jesus walks into the garden. He steps forward to meet his captors. He identifies himself as the one they want. And with Jesus in full control and us, we see plainly what he could have done. If he causes them to draw back and fall to the ground, we see that he has, if he has the power to do that, he had the power to strike them dead or to walk right through the garden or to stop it at any moment. In Matthew chapter 26, we even see Jesus says this, this statement where, where, hey, you know, if I wanted to, I can actually call down thousands of angels to protect us. But he doesn't. We come to a passage like John 18 and it's titled, The Arrest of Jesus. But, but really what's happened is it's his willing surrender. Although Peter doesn't get the memo. <laughs> Peter jumps into action, you know, like he wants to protect or defend Jesus. He might be still trying to kind of, kind of show Jesus, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to die for you. And he, he, he strikes for the, the head and hits the ear. I don't know if he just didn't fully commit on the swing, the follow through. I don't know. But there's this interesting moment where he hits the guy's ear. But Jesus... In the midst of it, we know he heals the guy's ear. But Jesus has to say to Peter, put your sword back into the sheath. 
shall I not drink from the cup of suffering that the Father's given me? And that, that cup is an allusion to the, the cup of suffering that he, he prays about in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not, I, not as I will, but as you will. And we see here at this point that the struggle of Gethsemane is over, though. That he is fully aware that his mission and destination is ahead of him. And he's fully determined to drink the cup. And this mission, he knows it doesn't involve swords or shields or fighting. This mission is about laying down his life, not fighting for it. Now, I do imagine Peter, Jesus probably saying something like this to Peter. Peter, you don't need to defend me. I don't need you to protect me. It's for this purpose that I was born. It's for this purpose I came into the world. I got this. And I wonder if this is a good word for some of us today too because Jesus doesn't need us to protect him, to defend him. You know, we see things going on around us in the world, critics of God, critics of Jesus. And, and, and sometimes we just start fighting or reacting to those words or to, to different people's statements about him or about the church. And we just start fighting or reacting to defend his name. And, and I get it. There's some times where we in a humble way and an honorable way do need this to respond. But if that's not our posture and we're just quickly reacting in anger to defend him, then I wonder if, if this might be a good moment for us to remember, just like Peter hey, I, God doesn't need us to, to defend him, to protect him. He is fully in control. And honestly, just like here, often it's in the suffering and the humility where Jesus is most glorified and most vividly seen. And so Jesus allows them to arrest him. And in the, next, the very next verse, verse 12, it says this, so the soldiers their commanding officer and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. Just imagine that. He allows them to tie him up. And, and, and you think about that in the midst of what we just walked through with this passage. And imagine the, the new weight that is now placed on it, that the one who is in full control, who has all power, allows himself to be fully arrested, the king of kings, allows himself to be bound and carried away. Jesus is willing surrender. Passage even goes on to say that he's, he's brought before Pilate and there's this scene where Jesus is not responding to the questions that Pilate's asking him. And Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers him, says, you have no authority over me. He says, you have no authority over me at all unless it had not been given you from above. Jesus is willing to surrender for you and for me to destroy sin and to destroy death. The enemy meant it for evil, but God is greater than our enemy. This scene reminds me of that beautiful moment in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where where Aslan, you know, the lion, the, the Christ figure in the story, where he, he, sat, he willingly surrenders himself up for Edmund. And, and they grab him, they, they take him to the table, and they're mocking him, and they're ridiculing him, and they kill him on the table. But just like the gospel, Aslan rises from the dead. You remember that? 
And there's this beautiful moment where he interacts with Lucy and with Susan. They're in awe. They're just like, I don't understand this. And they, and he sa- and they say, what does this mean? And there's this beautiful quote. I wanted to show it to you where, where Aslan explains to them. He says, though the evil witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim, willing surrender, who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Look at that last sentence. A willing victim who committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. This is why Jesus came. And you see in this a purpose that is deeper and that's greater. It's a beautiful passage. As you think about these scenes and you think about a passage like this, there's one more thing that we see, that we feel. When you think about Aslan stepping in for Edmund, when you think about Jesus letting himself be captured and taken and led to the cross, what emotions get evoked? What, what, are, what are emotions are you feeling in this moment? Because in one hand, we can go, yeah, it's because of my sin. But more mainly and primarily, it's because of his love. Jesus' full control, great power, protective care, his willing surrender. You take all of these things and then you watch the Savior get bound and carried away to the cross. What motivates Jesus to do that? This is love. It's amazing love for God showed us how much he loved us in this, that he laid down his life for his friends. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so with the clarity that this passage gives us of the absolute ability that Jesus had to leave the scene, and yet his willing surrender, what we see is his love. And, and I remember the Lord allowing me to see how big he is in this passage, but in seeing how big he is, I was also blown away by the depth of his love that he would do that for me. Because the more that you and I grasp how willing he was, the more you and I grasp that Jesus, the the great I am, the the one who is the word that was in the beginning, the good shepherd, the word that was God, the suffering shepherd, the more that I grasp how he was willing, the more I grasp how loving he is. This passage changed my life because it changed my perspective of him. That it it inspires me by his power. It encouraged me because of his comfort, because of his care, his protection. But I would say that when you stake all that in, this passage is for me, it transformed me because of his love. And I would just pray and hope for you and I today that we come to the, the Bible, which again, we, we, we stand upon. We place ourselves under. We allow his voice to speak to us that passages like this, but maybe for us, just his word as we dig into it, that God would awaken in us a love for his word, a fire that would burn deep, really not just because of his word, but because it points us to him and we see his love. And we see the magnitude of who he is in our lives and that we might live for it.
wherever he leads us. So be encouraged today. We serve an amazing God and we have an amazing Savior. Would you pray with me? To him be the glory. Lord, we lay this before you now. Thank you for Jesus. Passages like this on a Labor Day weekend, may it just remind us of the sacrifice you made for us. You were willing to die for us. It was our sins, my sin, that moved you there, and yet it was your love that leaned in. So God, we're grateful. We know it's only by your grace, and we trust you. Would you continue to, to lead us to live for you, to know you more. And we pray all this in your son's name, amen.